<clears throat> Welcome to the Fatty Z Muskie Podcast. I'm Andy. Joined on the phone, I have Vance. Good evening, Vance. Good evening. How are you? I'm decent. Decent is fine. And we also have John Anderson. John, how are you? I'm better than decent. Well, hey, look. Doing pretty good. Doing doing pretty good, actually. That's <laughs> that's great. Uh, we got some positive, upbeat energy. So uh, I'm going to hammer through my plugs because John's a really interesting guy, and we want to talk as much as we can to him about his stuff. So this show is brought to you by Fatty Z Musky Products. FattyZMusky.com is the website. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And we've been busy as beavers over here. I've been making baits, actually painting and assembling baits for a couple uh, store orders. And rod holders have not stopped flying out of this pole barn. Uh, and today's no exception. So uh, luckily, I, I talked last week about how I have like three things out of my control. Well, all three things seem to have come together and there's been no interruption. So I'm very proud to say that. Um, with that, you can probably find some baits at Team Rhino Outdoors and Muskie Tackle Online. And as always, FattyZMuskie.com is the place for the rod holders. Muddy Creek, how are you? Muddy Creek Fishing Guides, mcfishandguides.com. Give us a call. Uh, we got some availability uh, in the late fall, October, November. Um, call us if you're coming up. Get you out there on some fat Chautauqua sh- sh- muskies. Uh, but if you want to come earlier, we are doing five to nine charters uh, until uh, the beginning of September because it stays light out until about 930 around here. So I just got off the water from one of those. I'm here with you guys. And you're doing decent. About that. I'm doing decent. Also, uh, shout out to Ranger Boats for sponsoring this show and Mike Creek Fishing Guides. Uh, shout out to St. Croix Rods for sponsoring both of the companies. And uh, for all your Ranger needs, check out Vic Sports Center in Kent, Ohio. Excellent. And that leads us to Muskie's Inc., doesn't it, Vance? It does. All right, so Muskie's Inc. We talk about it every week. It's kind of very important. At least, you know, we're seeing very positive differences here in our fishery due to Muskie's Inc. and their uh, close relationship with the Pennsylvania Fish Commission. Um, If you feel that there's a disconnect between the anglers and your local fishing agency that's in charge of the waterways and stocking and all that, you know, try to bridge the gap there with Muskie's Inc., some really cool stuff that uh, they can do. I just got my magazine in the mail today for July and August. I like to look at those uh, release, catch and release, uh, I guess, contest, tournament, whatever. And there's a lot of people there on a lot of different states. It's really cool that, you know, people are participating all across the U.S. in that. And um, I see uh, Dave, he's he's still in the running, but it was as of late May when uh, – when things were being tallied, but he was, I think, top 10 at least, his name mm-hmm. in there, and, you know, we're just going to keep on cheering last year's uh, champion on, and we're going to see how that goes. But, yeah, definitely join your local chapter. Uh, tournaments and giveaways, prizes, banquets, it's all good, good stuff, and it's not that much money. It's like 45 bucks a year. I mean, how can you beat that? So, Debate. That's right. And uh, with that, I give Muskie's Inc. two big thumbs up. Uh, announcement. We're going to be hitting up this announcement every so often as we get going. Uh, anyone in the Caesar Creek State Park area, the family Fall Family Fishing Derby 
It's Saturday, September 27th. It's at Caesar Creek State Park. That's in uh, Waynesville, Ohio. It's from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can register at fishdonkey.com. This is hosted by the Bible Baptist Church of Wilmington, Ohio. For more information, go to bb uh, yeah, bbcwilmington.org or call Matt Richardson at 937-369-5285. For more information, this is a... Uh, like a family tournament thing, and there's going to have a musky, musky part of this tournament. It should be a good time had by all, and uh, keep your ears open as we're going to be uh, broadcasting that here um, periodically as we're leading up, and then we'll push a little bit harder as we get there. All right, John, that's enough yammering out of us. Hit up all the things that you're doing. Uh, musky season just opened up here. Um, eight days in from fishing on the Ottawa River. I got to start fishing on the tributaries on June 6th. Um, life is really exciting right now. Last year, we were in the throes of the worst flood of all time here. And I had my worst June fishing of all time. And this June's been absolutely spectacular. So, you know, uh, Vance told it in his voice tonight, man, when guides are catching fish, life is beautiful. And, uh, it's a really strong start to the year. And it looks like, uh, looks like it's going to be a bountiful year of, uh, lots of fish and, and lots of big fish. Um, conditions are just ideal through the spring with an early spawn. So, um, I'm busy. My guides are, uh, are busy. Um, we're really missing the American content so far, and gosh, I hope the border gets open at some point this summer. Um, you know, I have friends and people I've been fishing with for uh, for 20 years, uh, for over 20 years, um, you know, that I get to see every year. And so uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a big part of, of being a guide is, is these relationships. So um, the muskie season's coming together well. Muskie Factory Baits is having a banner year. Um, everybody, uh, license sales are up about 50% in most provinces in Canada, and I understand uh, most of the states as well. Tackle guys are doing great, so that's been keeping us really busy this spring. Um, we got some research projects going on up here. Um, we live and breathe muskie, and uh, it's a good place to be in to do that. Very nice. What's the guide service, and where can we find it? Ottawa River com. Been around for 20 years. We fish the Ottawa River in eastern Ontario. Um, uh, Muskie Hunter Magazine has traditionally called it a, a top 10 water in, uh, on the planet. And, uh, and it absolutely is. Um, good numbers and a really good chance at a 50 inch fish. So I live in a great place. And then we've got the, the St. Lawrence, um, river very close by and that's just out of control for for your big fish fishing so uh and and then also in this area of eastern ontario and western quebec there are literally hundreds of lakes small lakes um with muskies in them as well so so many opportunities it's a great place to be sounds wonderful so let's uh let's take a step back here and let's hear the story of john when did you get into fishing and kind of just give us the timeline of your progression? I mean, I don't think you were, 
in diapers throwing musky baits. So let's hear the progression from there leading up through your life and, you know, milestones and all this stuff like that. Let's, when'd you get into fishing? Um, got into fishing in, in, uh, the lower mainland of British Columbia with a paint can nailed to the end of a broken hockey stick. Oh, and you could catch frogs and tadpoles and sticklebacks in the, in the ditches around there. And that was, uh, like literally ditches along the road. Literally, literally the ditches along the road. Um, it's all connected to the ocean, so they rise and fall. And yeah, as a kid, that's what that's that's what we used to do. So that was the the first of uh, catching uh, the first catching, I guess. And then first muskies. Uh, Thirteen years old on the the Rideau River here in eastern Ontario, and I had a high school basketball coach who uh, uh, my muskie mentor. Uh, he was a guide in northern Ontario, north of Kenora, um, associated with the Lake of the Woods system, an amazing place called Menaki. And I got to go up there with uh, with him uh, starting when I was 15 and 16. And the best thing, one of the best things I ever learned in life is that people will pay you money to go fishing. Now, it took me a couple of other careers to come back to grasp onto that nugget of knowledge, which I, I should have jumped on uh, a long time ago, but it's uh, been an interesting, uh, an interesting road to to get to here. So I started guiding in in Menaki, Ontario, on the English and Winnipeg River systems in the late '70s. I started uh, in the '90s here on the Ottawa River, and some of the some of the trips in eastern Ontario. Started doing this full time 20 years ago. Um, active member of Muskies Canada. I get to. Uh, I get to work on, on cutting edge research. Um, we drive more research out of Ottawa than any other single location in, in North America. And it comes through Carleton university. And so I get to work with the biologists and different people in Muskie's Canada on that. So we catch them, we put transmitters on them and do telemetry work. We do habitat work, um, just, uh, just cutting edge stuff. And so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's progressed to a full-time, all-encompassing gig, and uh, it's a good one. I like it. That's incredible. I have a couple questions, but, I mean, I feel like this could be a couple-part series with with your uh, with your history. Um, but going back to it, I know that you, you said you were from B.C., and then you moved all the way across, uh, all, all across those provinces, over towards Ottawa. Yeah, but you got your start from your basketball coach, and you said that people will pay you to go. You learned that people will pay to go fishing. Now, this basketball coach, you probably were a good player. He just took you out. You probably were you were you just uh, were you a stud hooper? Why did he say like, hey, let me show you the ropes here? I, I was, you know, I was a good high school point guard. I was a city all-star and, and, you know, we had an amazing coach. He was a mentor to a lot of us and basketball was a 12 month a year proposition. Um, and so you just, he just developed us as players and as, and as people. And he was a, he was a guide. He thought this was the greatest, one of the greatest things in his life. And, and it truly was. And, and he took me into a town, this town called Menaki with a musky culture. And, and the, the musky people were just revered. 
if you caught fish, everybody wanted to know. People you didn't know would come and talk to you. And so as a kid, you know, this was this this was big. You could just see the reverence for this. And so this was a, a culture that I got uh, indoctrinated in. And then I started guiding there and, and became, a, a, you know, a little part of it. And uh, it just it just grew from there. Yeah. Lucky, a lucky start. I had had a bunch of people uh, um, who were mentors who taught me. I had lodges that had a program on on educating you on and how to 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 deal with guests and you know how to cook your shore lunches and and you know do groups etc. So it was a a good start. A lot of guides don't get that. Uh, I think that was a nice beginning. That's incredible. So he didn't say like, you better hit this buzzer beater. We're not going musky fishing or anything like that. (laughs) No, he's still a good friend. He and his wife, Judy, Ken Stuttle and Judy Stuttle. He's still an awesome friend today. Um, I go to the gym with him. He pushes more weights than I do. It's embarrassing. Um, (laughs) You know, it's, uh, it's, it's a relationship that just keeps going and we still talk, we still talk hoops and we go to some, uh, we have a really incredible program here with the Carleton University Ravens, uh, national uh, champions for, uh, gosh, 14 of the last 17 years up here. And so we have an amazing program. And, uh, wow. You're a basketball guy at all. They, they play a lot of NCAA teams, and we follow that, too. So good banter with you, uh, my American guests. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, one thing, you know, with this long-lasting basketball coach relationship, I didn't hear that you're still fishing together. Are you guys fishing together? Um, I try to get him out. Um, he was still going to Menaki until uh, until last year, um, and so yeah, we have some plans to get out later in the summer. You know, it's well intentioned, but uh, it is just busy. You know, we, we got we're going out, or somebody's going out seven days a week uh, most of the time up here, and and uh, we take it seriously, and we fish long, hard days, and. It's not a lot of energy for uh, <laughs> for other endeavors, you know, as you go through the season. But uh, I surely hope to get out with uh, with Ken and Judy this year. It's on the list. Yeah. It always is. Going back to the early days of when you started doing the muskie fishing, like when did you get your first boat? Oh, my first muskie boat was a 19-foot Springbok canoe. And I put a 1964 three and a half horse Johnson motor on that boy. Could I cover water? And, uh, that <laughs> took me, that took me into the big league. I could, uh, I could cover a stretch of the Rideau river south of Ottawa. And, uh, and that was it. I don't, I don't know if I was old enough to drive when I, I might've been 15 when and I got that. How was, how would you describe fishing out of a canoe compared to a boat? <laughs> not that a canoe is not a boat, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole different set of challenges. And, uh, this was a flat bottom canoe. I chose it so that it, you, uh, we could actually stand up in it and cast. Um, and I don't remember falling out of it too many times. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 it worked well enough. You know, when you were kids, it would just, you know, you did whatever you had to do to go musky fishing, right? Yeah. I mean, so you, you hook a fish. A lot of times I see people take the, the canoe right to the bank and then fight the fish on the bank. Was that kind of your tactic, or did you uh, bring it to the to the edge and release it? 
Um, we brought it to the canoe. We, we brought it to the edge of the edge of the canoe and uh, and released it. Um, you know, I was a teenager in the early seventies, and uh, um, back then we were just learning catch and release. So when I was uh, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, fifteen, probably I wasn't releasing uh, a lot of the fish out of the out of the canoe. And uh, but by the time I was sixteen, um, I had that education down pat. So. Uh, what were you doing? Were you eating those fish? Ate a few of them. Yeah. Um, gave them to friends who, you know, when you were that age, uh, we were bringing them back. There was always somebody who would take them and, you know, it, 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 it was a brag. It was, it was sadly fish dying for, uh, for ego. And, uh, uh, at this stage in life, you know, you look back at things like that and you just shake your head because I do so much, uh, uh, I try to give back uh, uh, as much as I can in, in writing and in public speaking and in representing Muskie Canada and in teaching catch and release and in promoting good science. And so, you know, we all start somewhere. And uh, um, Muskie World was the first world ever to start teaching catch and release. And that goes back to the early 70s. And so, you know, we were ahead of ahead of our time. But, you know, I was a little bit before that when... Uh, and not not too educated no, getting into it. No mean, shame, no shame in that. We uh, we have an old timer, not to say that you're old, that occasionally does this podcast. He hasn't been on the last five ones, but that's just a a uh, silly little slight to him. But we we talk about that all the time with him. That that's just what how it was back then. You know, the catch and release really was not around, and you know we've we've spoken. Tons of times on here about how people, uh, just how it was. Eat them. Yeah, that's just that's just what what the culture was, and I think it's really interesting uh, to see that catch and release. Uh, and we t- and Todd he talks about it how, how it started down here, and it's kind of neat to see how it also started um, north of the border as well. Um, and I don't know if it happened at the same time. As like as as the states, but I think everybody was pretty much on the same page with it, and I think that's uh, really cool that you brought up that musky fishing pretty much put catch and release on the map. Uh, yeah, I I also I I purposely went harder on that because anymore, if you follow any social media here in the next week or two, it's going to be popping up. Don't fish the water temps, blah blah blah. That it's it's neat to see, it's refreshing to see what how it used to be, why it used to be, and everything's going to be okay if there's a dead fish. We're not promoting everyone killing their fish, but it's just interesting of the progression that you would kill the ones you catch, and now you're we're going to get into this later, doing all this good positive work to help these fish. And it's it's just it, to me. I think it's important to talk about the past, just so people who might not know and understand are going to appreciate. Maybe have a little more insight on how it used to be, and it might calm them down from being musky police. So, I mean, that's 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 great stuff there. I, I love I love hearing that stuff. So yeah, we're just we're just so much smarter now, and uh, and we keep getting smarter. So and and that's the whole and point here. We- no yeah, that nope. leads to better muskies, 
more muskies, more people. You know, this is the golden age of muskie fishing, right? There's more muskies now than at any point in history. There's muskies in more states than ever before. There's more muskies because of catch and release. There's more people muskie fishing than at any point in history. I mean, this is the golden age of muskie fishing. It's never been easier to catch one either. Not that it's easy all the time, but, (laughs) you know, but still it's, I I can't, I can't personally recall a time. I've seen fisheries around my place improve tremendously just in the last handful of years. And, uh, absolutely. It's, it's, and I think what, what you mean by, by easy, it's the less difficult program, (laughs) but let's talk about what was your first musky rod, John, then now uh, my first musky rod was let's see the first ones that i used but i didn't own one i couldn't afford one up north was was fenwick stuff i mean fenwick was was a name was the name you know back in the in the 70s the lake of the woods area where i was so that was it the first nice musky rod i i had uh, that i bought was a, a shimano a Shimano rod and it had a pistol grip on it. So, and I think it was like six foot, almost like six foot six. I broke the end off of it and I got it fixed and I still have it downstairs, you know, <laughs> after all of these years. And so, uh, and now, um, I've, I've been on the, the Shimano team for, uh, the last seven or eight years up here in Canada. Um, proud of that. I work with them on equipment development. I test products for them. I take their people out, um, active in research with them. And yeah, I throw, uh, I throw all their stuff and I love it. So, uh, that's, a that's, a, a long time evolution as well. So your first musky rod was six foot six and now it's probably nine, 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 six. Yeah. Nine, six. I got a new gix. Got, got a bunch of nine, six gigs this year. It's very cool. Are you liking them really long rods? I don't want to break too far from our, our little timeline we're going with here, but do you really like those long, long rods? Um, I'll tell you a story about how that catches us more fish. Um, I had a, a, a woman out on Friday and her husband, and they're new to musky fishing the last four or five years. She caught nine. She had nine fish total in, like, I don't know, in four or five years. He had... He had 22 the week before on a local body of water here. They had, she alone had 20 fish up to the boat in two days. And, uh, and he had another four up and they didn't catch any. And so we're known for catching fish on figure eights around here. Educated fish, it all comes down to, uh, how well you finish at the side of the boat. And that's what separates, uh, an average angler from, from a good angler. And so we spent the first couple of hours of the morning teaching her to, to really to use a big rod and to cover water and to take the rod and the bait down underwater, take the fish's eyes off of the boat. And with a big rod, you can do that. And figure eights, that's a, it's a terrible term to teach people because you're teaching them to do little circles. And, you know, maybe that's fine for pond muskies, but, uh, in the big leagues, uh, big fish can't turn sharp circles. And but you can play with fish and lead a fish um, if you don't make them make a purchase decision and rip a bait back 
by their head. And so that big rod, that extra foot, foot and a half on the end of a rod, it lets you cover so much more water. It lets you get down deep. Um, it lets you do the big circles. Uh, and it let, you know, you play, you play deep, you play shallow, you bring the, the bait up out of the depths. And so every year that, that rods got longer for the last 15 years, which they've been doing, you know, it's like, wow, Hey, you know what? There's a few more fish to be had with this because you just, you can technically finish better with longer rods. So yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing I'll say is I'm, I'm 59. And so for me, it's all about easy. I'm a caster. I want to throw all day, you know, and all season. Um, and so any advantage that you have, so something that's really light, something that launch that, that you use physics, right? You want to, you want to, you want to have good posture and good position. I try to coach this with people and let your equipment do the work. And physics just says, if you have a longer fishing rod and, and, and one that adds some throw into your bait, it, it's just going to make your whole life easier. So, you know, yeah, that, that longer fishing rod it's better for your body. It's better for, it's better for everything. Nice. So big thumbs up for long rods in your book. (laughs) Absolutely. And this woman, by the way, I didn't finish that. She caught, uh, she caught her first, her 10th fish was a 50 and a half that she caught on the fourth time around at the side of the boat. And we watched this fish go four circles, nip on the second one, eat on the fourth one. And were no little circles. And that was the fish of her life. And so, you know, that was partly because of the long rod. She got another big one at sunset too, also on a, on a, on a figure O at the side of the boat. Figure O. I love it. That's a nice tip for anybody listening. Uh, to do those figure eights nice and deep. You never know when those fish are following in. You might not see them, but they could be there. Yeah, very, very cool aspect. So getting kind of back to our timeline. So you fished out of the canoe. When did you graduate into the big league boats? Um, I was in little league boats for a bunch of years. When I was guiding <laughs> up north, you know, I was, I was, I was the cat's ass, man. Cause somebody gives you a boat. I had a 25 horse Merc, two stroke loud, ate a lot of oil. You steered that with your knee, you steered that on your 18 foot Lund. There was only two products up there, Mercury and Lund. You okay. Know? And that was, that was all there was in, in, in the North cause, um, well, for, for very good reasons, but you stirred your, your 25 horse Lund around backwards with your knees. Well, you cast and your guest cast, and uh, um, and that was a big league boat back then. Now, a 25 horse back then was uh, a little more motor for sure than a 25 now. Uh, I don't I... know the exact comparison, but yeah. Yeah, so I fished out of stuff like that for a bunch of years, and then I guess uh, probably in the, in the late 80s, I got up to a 60 horse, and then a 65, and wow, man. <laughs> big, big, big leaf stuff, but you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't have good boats until, uh, till into the early two thousands, Lund's then and, uh, and crest liners now. Uh, okay. Nothing but good things to say. That's great. So, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of people out there that 
might have, you know, some 16 foot tin boat and they're all down on themselves because they see sparkly boats all over the place. And it's, it's nice to hear that, you know, you don't need that to get it done. Does it make life nicer? Uh, that could be argued, but you can get it done with a budget boat. And, uh, absolutely. And I think it, I think it comes down to what you're comfortable with guiding with, you know, some of these guides have very nice boats because they have to house people. You know, there's, you can, I could easily go out and fish by myself in a, in a 16 footer. But when you start packing two to three people in the boat, you kind of need a bigger boat Yeah. nowadays. Yeah. There's a safety aspect to a bigger boat as well. If you're teaching people to cast, um, you know, two or three people, uh, three people, especially, you know, casting in the boat. And so, so that helps as well. I still have, uh, I still have an aluminum canoe and I still take it out in the spring. I didn't, I had plans to go musky fishing in it this year because, because uh, your small boats let you access water that the big boats can't get to, aren't allowed to get to, or can't get to in a lot of cases. And, and you know, there's a lot of musky water. I know Pennsylvania and Ohio, you got a lot of different opportunities down there. So, Oh, without a doubt. You can snake up in these like little hidey holes and stuff like that. It's, it's great. But so we kind of see the progression here. You know, you, I'd say you progress like most people. You start out with what you can afford and then you work yourself, you know, you're sticking with the sport. You're going to work yourself to better equipment. And here you are. You're, you're now guiding. Like, was this like a part-time deal or, you know, you, you kind of said you went through a few careers prior to this or was there no plan B after this? Was this you're all in and this is just has to work? Well, I did a long roundabout route to come back to guiding. I was guiding as a, as a teenager, um, as a summer job. Um, I came back to it, uh, part-time in the, in the nineties. I mean, uh, I got a commerce degree and ran restaurants and groups of restaurants for about 15 years. I owned a nice restaurant. Um, and then I got a second education and I went and worked high tech in the nineties and I got laid off in two different, uh, high tech meltdowns of the nineties. And at that point I just decided I didn't want anyone to write me a check anymore. Um, guiding and fishing muskies was, you know, a, a physical and mental addiction, um, <laughs> for most of my life as it was. And so, yeah, I went all in, uh, 20 years ago. I just decided this is, uh, this is what I'm doing and where I'm going. And, um, and, and grew from there. So, uh, yeah, dug my heels in, starved for a few years. Uh, Ottawa wasn't a destination by any means, um, 20 years ago. It was, uh, wasn't a well-known, uh, it was a secret in the, um, in the American muskie community and probably not even known at all in the uh, Ottawa or in the, in the Canadian community, very little, but, um, in that, you know, in the last 20 years, uh, the world has changed. The communication world has changed greatly and, um, there's not a whole lot of secrets in the muskie world anymore. And so people know what they are. Yeah, we've grown with that. Well, that's thank good. you, Facebook. Thank you, Facebook. And and now <laughs> you're saying you know you have several guides under under uh, 
under you that, you know, help carry the load? And do you have like yeah. cottages and stuff with this or? Um, we, we provide, uh, um, accommodation options. I'm sponsored by, uh, motel 1967 in Plantagenet, Ontario. Um, I work with Quebec tourism. Um, the, our river is the border between Ontario and Quebec. Um, there's literally a line down the middle of the river, not a painted line or anything, but you can see it on your graph. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we've got places, we've, we've got places where we can put people up and down the river. Um, you know, and Airbnb has made things, uh, a lot easier for people as well. So, uh, all kinds of options from, from the five star, star, uh, Fairmont Shadow Montebello to, uh, just something to crash in. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of options around here. We're happy to hook people up with. Okay. So let's just say I'm coming up to, to, to fish a trip with you. What, what kind of, you know, what's your standard run of the mill? What should I expect? Um, you should expect a big river. Um, a lot of the water that we're on, we cover a lot of water in different territories. Try not to fish. We have that, that luxury. Um, the Ottawa river is 900 miles long. There's muskies in the bottom 250 miles or two, uh, say bottom 200 miles. Um, and we fish probably, uh, we fish a hundred miles of the river pretty hard. Um, maybe, maybe an 80 mile stretch is, is what I call home. And I'm in located in the middle of that. So we travel and cover different water. A lot of the channel in the area is over 300, over a hundred feet deep. The deepest hole in my section is over 300 feet deep. It is not normal. And so, um, you know, it's, it's intimidating. It's intimidating for a lot of for a lot of musky people who aren't familiar with with big water. And so, uh, but it's like it's like anything, you know. You eat an elephant one bite at a time, and just break it down. And uh, and we can we can choose uh, we can choose the sections that we want to fish in, um, you know, based on clarity, based on conditions, which can be different. You know, our, our weather is very dynamic around here. A lot of thunderstorms uh, in and out. So dynamic conditions, dynamic water, big water. Um, we catch probably we we probably catch thirty five to forty percent of our fish at the side of the boat. Um, an average day is seeing six, seven, eight fish. This time of year, it's probably more like ten to twelve fish that we contact. Um, we we cast all day for. Uh, one one point one point six three to two point zero five or zero six fish uh, per day over a season, which is a good number. An average fish out of our river from Muskie Canada numbers is just uh, going on forty inches. Um, one in about one in thirteen to one in sixteen fish is over fifty inches. Um, so it's a it's a, a really and we have all the all the colors. And all the sizes and shapes of muskies. We have alligator heads. Uh, we have snub nose. Um, we have naturally occurring tigers. Uh, you know, a, a complete array of, uh, of patterns. And up here, our fish live to 30 years old, which is complete uh, a complete life expectancy for, uh, for muskies as well. The other thing I'll say is they're river muskies. And if you fish lakes or reservoirs, 
the difference between a wild fish and a stock fish is one level of uh, energy and strength. And then when you put a river fish and a lake fish together, a river fish has been on a treadmill its whole life. It's got a bigger tail. It's got bigger fins. And it is going to take you for a ride that no other fish is going to take you on. So, yeah, that's uh, we're in a good place. If I don't sound too much like a homer, sorry. You are. Uh, <laughs> that river, I didn't realize how big that river was. And, yeah. like, let's just say average Joe shows up. How do you tackle? I mean, if, okay, if it's 100 feet deep, the deepest being 300, how wide is it? it, it it's got to be some, place, some places. It, some places it's two to three miles. Um, other places it's narrowed down into to rapids. There's, uh, you know, and it breaks off into channels. Um, I, I make a living fishing shallow. You know, I gave you all of that depth, and our telemetry studies have showed us that there's fish that live deep all year. There's fish that live shallow all year, and there's fish that roam in between, you know, both of those preferred depths. But um, I make a living fishing shallow. I don't, I don't go deeper than 12 feet. Okay, I was going to ask you, like, what's the deepest you know of someone catching a fish? I mean, I can't imagine they're 90 feet deep and 100 foot of water, and you're pulling them up. Deepest I've heard somebody tell me they caught a fish in is 65 feet. Um, that, you know, that's a terrible, terrible idea to even pursue that fish in 65 feet, 33 feet as a scuba diver, 33 feet is one atmosphere, um, uh, of, of pressure. And so if you're taking a fish, um, personally, I don't like fishing fish more than 25 feet down myself. And I won't do that unless the water's cold and uh, usually in the fall. And then, okay. So that's the deep. You're fishing shallow. Does this river give up a lot of weed beds, rocks, logs? What do you look for when when you're out there? Um, A neat aspect of it is that there's 13 dams, and so it's a water-controlled system, and the water is controlled pretty exactly. And what that means is that um, we don't have year classes of fish. The reason this river is so good is most places have year classes. So that's uh, the water conditions were good for a spawn this year, and then they're bad for a couple of years. Then they were good for a couple. And so, you know, the population has bulges and, and, and void, depending on, on how the spawn was, uh, whether it was successful or not. On the Ottawa River, because we've had managed water levels, um, our research has shown us that muskies want to spawn in exactly the same place every year given the water conditions are the same and their ability is there to do that. That's their preference by far and they get really good at it. And so um, with the system managed the way it is, they can spawn successfully year after year after year. So we have what's called constant recruitment, just a population that is replenished um, every single year. And so uh, that's one of the, one of the neat things about this system. Yeah, I mean, that's really refreshing. I mean, that's not really something that happens, at least in, in our home state here, Pennsylvania, where you can just kind of have it, I don't know, fix itself every year. Um, that's that's really, really interesting that that's able to be done, you know, through the hand of man, more or less. 
I mean that. Yeah. Was that we, uh, that wasn't it, on purpose, was it? Um, the management of the system. The, I mean, the management of the system was on purpose, but the byproduct of having exceptionally consistent musky spawning that wasn't like in the you know in the proposal of doing this, was it? <laughs> Yeah, well, going going back to the fifties and sixties, the understanding um, we have a completely different management approach to our fisheries than you do. We have completely different conditions, and so I've done a fair amount of speaking in Pennsylvania and Ohio, and so I'm familiar with your uh, with your fisheries. And um, you know, there, it's it's a put and take it's a put and take environment. And, and looking for good genes and the right genes and then increasing water quality. Um, up here, we managed the integrity of the system. We didn't go through industrialization the way that you did. And so our systems didn't get degraded the way that a lot of yours did. And so um, natural reproduction never got compromised or didn't get compromised in, in a big way. And so um, our approach everywhere is to manage the integrity of the system and to allow the fish populations to naturally take care of themselves and to work for habitat, you know, water quality and habitat, the integrity of the system. Do not play with the water levels everywhere that we've played with water levels. You know, the St. Lawrence on down is a bad idea. And so, you know, this approach was uh, was really good. And then the other thing that we've tried to do or we do in the modern day anyway is we don't introduce any genetics that weren't there to begin with we don't stock anywhere right now uh, unless it's for rehabilitation and when we do and that's only in lake simcoe and i'm not even sure if that's happening this year and they were taking original genetics and reproducing stock from those to put back in the system it's all genetically intact and so you know a big difference between Pennsylvania and Ohio, and I haven't spoken down there for a few years, but I, I used to read Elmer Hayob's uh, research and loved what he did. His dad built the Ohio fishery, I believe, significantly. El- Elmer ran it for uh, um, ran it for a number of uh, ran it for a number of years as well. And so um, the research that I read had, you know, one fish to 14 years old. Now, and this is again going back a few years. And a whole lot of 13-year-old fish and, you know, 12 on down, et cetera. And so the difference between those fish, um, and it's amazing. Like, uh, you can grow a 48-inch fish. I remember reading about a 5-year-old 48-and-a-half-inch fish in Ohio. I just had to sit down on a couch and think about think about that. Like, that's just that's just beyond. Because for us up here, uh, you know, that's a fish that's 17, 18, 19 years old. Uh, you know, somewhere, somewhere in there. And so it's two different worlds. And so those fish down there living to 13 and 14 and these living to 30, they have a much different life experience and learning experience year after year as well. Yeah. Big difference between, uh, between, between the management of the systems, you know, and, and, and how they, you know, how they got to where they are again, understanding the history. And um, I, I love you guys, your plugs for muskies Inc. at the start, just fantastic. I so many dedicated guys I would meet down there at the Pennsylvania Muskie Max uh, and the other shows. And I love the stories of, of learning where reproduction was taking place in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Cause when I first started going there, 
and there wasn't really any stories of reproduction working, you know, in the Ohio River. And so to hear of pockets here and there where water quality and conditions and habitat are are suitable and working and reproduction is, is working, it's like, you know, that's that's the first step. That's those are those are such phenomenal first steps that you know that are earned that 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 you know that don't just happen and those are those are through the efforts of people who care you know and it's, it's great stories yeah i mean the fish so will I, do I it cheer, for free i cheer for you <laughs> i cheer for your fisheries <laughs> yeah i mean we're things are things are looking up here i mean there's still a lot of stocking to to maintain this stuff but you know it's just something interesting that i never really thought of too much is you know the industrialization comments that you made, like just about there's only a few bodies of water that I know here that just don't have something, whether it's a large housing development or, you know, someplace pulling water from it. It's, it's a different world that, you know, I I haven't seen where you're at. And, uh, it's kind of a neat, neat outsider's perspective almost, you know, with listening to what you're, what you're experiencing up there. It's, it's, it's very refreshing. Yeah. But you know what? Catching a muskie is just as thrilling, uh, no matter where you catch it and, and how you catch it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, so that's the guiding aspect. Now you talked about a bait company. Talk, talk, talk to us about that. Um, muskiefactorybaits.com. If you want to go and have a look at it, anybody, we started making baits, uh, um, you know, I've pro staff for a bunch of different companies over the years and, and used a lot of great baits and worked on designing baits for decades and just decided uh, just decided it was uh, you know, something I talked about for a long time and it was time to put into play. And so uh, we started out um, making inlines with some tweaks and some differences um, to make them the way that I liked. And then uh, another facet of it is we donate $2 from every bait that we sell uh, directly to research. And we leverage that money um, with different chapters in Muskies Canada and other groups and take on, you know, and take on some, some good projects. So we, we've already completed uh, the first steps of our, our first big project. And, you know, we're, uh, we're talking and, and working on more. So, uh, this year, um, <laughs> this year has been a breakout year for the company. Um, musky people have had nothing to do but sit online and buy lures, it seems, for the past couple of months. I can attest and, to that. Uh, listen, to, <laughs> listen, to, listen to great podcasts and, uh, you know, and, and so, uh, yeah, the, the, the company has, uh, has grown nicely. So very, very proud of that and pleased with that. And um, we branched into... Uh, into our own leader line. We make the own, only wide gap snap leaders that anybody has. You know how your leaders don't fit on all your musky baits? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we fix that. It's pretty pretty simple and pretty easy after after a lot of years. So, um, yeah, we've got a few different products. And, um, you know, for me, that's, uh, that's that, that money going back is just, just giving back to muskies that have uh, been so good to uh, – to people like you and I for our lives, you know, just, just part and parcel of what we, what we are, I think, obligated to do what yeah. we should do. And, you know, and even what we're obligated to do. So yeah, the lure company has been, uh, been a lot of fun so far. 
It's really interesting. Can you talk about that snap really quickly about you said the wide gap snap, it would fit on your tie point. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I've, there's so many different fakes that your leaders just don't fit on. I've used a bunch of different leaders over the years and they never had a convention. They should have a long time ago had a convention between the leader guys and the snap guys and the lure guys and got them all together in a room and said, Hey, you guys work together because your products don't fit with your products. And so <laughs> frustrating in the boat to, uh, <laughs> to open up that gap sometimes. But yeah, I mean, something, something simple, but uh, a lot of times musky fishing is, you know, just making simple tweaks and changes. So you just, you, you have the, uh, the part of the snap that, that goes through the tie point it's it's gapped bigger so on those really tiny tie points you can fit it in and obviously on the big ones it's not going to be an issue correct yeah we haven't found anything that it doesn't fit on yet so uh i i challenge you to do that there you go there go buy a whole bunch and uh find something i you know what i think you guys might find a couple in the mail next week Oh, no uh, kidding. Our mail, our mail is a little bit slow up here, so my, my, at this point. So, uh, <laughs> so is ours when we, go, when we, when we jump, the, when we have to go across the border there, it's just how it's been. I'm curious about that because there is, uh, there's a ton of baits when I, when I'm just like, oh my God, I can't fit this on my tie point. Um, I take pliers you know, and, and like wiggle mine oh, to where you can pop it on. It's it's a horrible proposition to be put in, and especially when you're guiding and stuff like that. A, a couple seconds could make or break you. You know, I'm trying to change a bait here, go from a you know a big through wire bait that has this, you know, you could fit anything through there. Your fist, and and then I'm I'm trying to put something on something smaller like a tough shad or a five inch wily something like that and i'm just like i can't fit my snap on here i have to ch- I, I just have to pick a different bait you gotta and, put on your bifocals too i not that old <laughs> yet <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's it that's really really that's that's, that's cool i really want to see that, that would be something i'm very interested in that's those quick seconds i deal with a lot of weeds on the water all the time and it even it even happened today. I was trying to change a bait, and the lure just wasn't fit, fitting. And I'm monkeying around with it. It took like ten seconds off of my my concentration to try to put this on, and I was just buried by this mountainous ball of weed. Your showstoppers spread out. Yes, it just wiped my spread out. Uh, and you know, if I just quickly changed it. I probably would have saw that ball weeds, but it's those seconds. <laughs> and, I, and I probably would have, you know, 10 fingers working, but because of those seconds, I only have about six. Yeah. We'll talk about that on the next podcast. Vance losing almost four fingers today. Yep. But, um, <laughs> but I, I, I want to jump back. You alluded to something. All this bait, you know, the, the, the $2 per bait to research and you guys were either starting or ending or doing something with a project and you never told us, can you talk about a project? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, the, 
the um, uh, the summary of the project was just published actually this past week. Now, the summary, um, the the results of the research um, were disappointing in that they didn't prove what I had hoped we would prove. We, um, I'll start this story with, we started an organization called Save a Million Fish. So a couple of years ago, I was filming a show called Fishful Thinking with a guy named Charlie Ray. And I got a 54. This fish had a, a bulldog uh, stuck in its uh, one hook, pierced the muscle next to the gill in the throat. And so I held the fish for pics. Um, and for the camera, talk for a moment. It wasn't until I was putting it in the water that I saw lots of blood coming out from underneath it. So the camera is there filming this fish, and I'm looking at it. You don't want to talk about a fish that's that's bleeding. Um, you know, a fish like this that you've hurt, it's just not a good conversation on the show. But I'm watching it, and it's bleeding profusely, and i got to say something about it. And so um, Gord Pizer, the... Uh, editor of fishing editor of outdoor Canada magazine. I fished with Gord, um, on and off. And Gord taught me this, um, a couple of years earlier that you could stop the bleeding in a fish, um, using a can of carbonated beverage, a can of soda pop. And so I took this 54 inch fish, uh, being a guide for a lot of years, I've held fish that have bled out in front of me. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. And so, um, uh, applied soda pop to this wound and we did it on camera. We had a camera underwater. Um, you could see the fish bleeding profusely, um, picked the fish up, applied a can of diet Coke to this wound and the, uh, the, uh, the bleeding stopped and we put the fish back in the water, um, quickly and the camera went back in. The bleeding had stopped and the fish regained itself probably in about 120 seconds, uh, not much longer, and swam away strong. So it was a fish that I knew would have died. My experience tells me absolutely it would have died. And we saved it with a can of Diet Coke, and we documented it on film. So, you know, I've done this for about three years and had probably 17 or 18 different experiences with it, one in 35 or one in 40 fish approximately gets a gets a severe bleeding wound from a, from a hook it just happens in in what we do and so um for me this is a this is a tool that i could use at the right time now oddly when i had the only fish that i couldn't stop the bleeding in or that i didn't feel that i could release in very good condition um were fish with gill injuries the gill injury was pretty much fatal um, I couldn't stop the bleeding or the fish um, would die. So fast forward, um, the first project that we funded um, was through Carleton University um, in conjunction with uh, Syracuse University done at the St. Lawrence River Research Institute. Uh, it was done last summer on about 600 and some pike. Um, there was Diet Coke, Mountain Dew, and carbonated lake water applied to injuries on these fish. Um, the fish, the injury that they chose was to cut a piece of gill out on each of these fish. And so um, the results 
showed that the carbonated beverage stopped the bleeding, but it actually didn't help the fish because it interfered with the natural heartbeat of the fish, um, causing tachycardia in some instances or the heartbeat to, uh, to stop and then to resume again. And so on this specific, um, on this specific injury, you know, a severe gill injury like this, uh, the carbonated beverages, the results of the study showed that the carbonated beverages didn't help the fish. Now, it's too bad in my mind that the protocols for this study um, weren't broader. And I'm still working with Stephen Cook and Sean Landsman, and we're going to talk about this again and see where we see where else we can go. The idea of this research was to to develop or to find a tool that any fisherman anywhere in the U in the world that wanted to release a, a bleeding fish um, could could have. And so, you know, even the poorest kids fishing in Southeast Asia that I have fish with, you know, can still afford a can of pop and there's catch and release people everywhere in the world. So in my mind, um, I know that there's a right time and a right place and a right way to apply this to save a fish that would otherwise die. Um, that said, the research didn't go to uh, to where we would have liked to, but uh, I had a wonderful talk with my wife this afternoon because I thought uh, she's a, a research scientist in, in nutrition, and you know she just <laughs> she just explained that you know you just didn't prove your hypothesis. It, you at this point you either discard your hypothesis um, as something that's not not valid, or you look at another at another way. You didn't disprove it. You you proved something very specific, and so you know the the research it's it, it it's it's never a straight road, and so uh, I'm a very much a man of science and uh, a, a believer in in using science to manage fisheries. And again, that's how that's what Muskies Canada drives up here to to help manage our our Canadian fisheries. And so um, I'm, I'm I was really pleased to be able to to fund the first uh, to fund this really neat and interesting research because there's a you know there's a lot of lore about it and a lot of information and misinformation um about it um on the web and so this is where we are so far and uh, i look at it as uh you know part way down a road to hopefully finding a, a tool to save more fish and that's something that all of us want so no this is very interesting and i remember seeing this clip um and thinking about it uh, in that research, how f can you just touch base on? Did they hit him with a fatal wound or just make him bleed? Like, did they clip the lung or, or one the of gill. the gills? Yeah, did they clip the gill? And they the clip they clip they clip a segment out of the gill. So um, it's embarrassing. This this information was published uh, like. 10 days ago, which was just the day before the start of my musky season. And so um, I haven't read it partially because it didn't, uh, it didn't go, you know, I, I have some writing to do and uh, um, that I don't have time to do right now. And, uh, uh, and some more work to do on this and just my, my energies need to be focused on, you know, where they are at the moment. But um, um, and yeah. nothing better than having to be guiding and then, have this on your shoulders as well. 
Um, you know, well, Musk, it's, it's, it, you know, it's an all encompassing, <laughs> it's an all, you know, people, people say, wow, guiding man, you just go out and sit in a boat all day with people and relax, talk a lot, and, you know, go home, have a beer. And no, man, it is, it is, it is, uh, 10 or 12 hours a day, 365 days a year. Um, we do it cause we love it. Uh, we talk it, we do shows, we play with lures hang out with other musky nuts we do research we read you know it's i don't have to tell anybody that's listening or you guys anyway yeah it's it's uh it's full on so yeah believe you me i i understand that it's just like this thing came out now you're on the water 10 to 12 hours and here it is and it's a it, it's a disproved hypothesis but there is nothing that proves more in your mind than spending time on the water and spending time with these muskies. Uh, You're your own scientist, you know, almost in in this aspect. It's almost like you want to bring these people, like, here's the, uh, you know, come out for a year with me and we'll do the study then live, live action, you know, in the boat, here's this, you know, here's the situation where I dumped the can of pop on, on, on one of the fish and it kicked off. And more than likely I'm going to be in that, that same area uh, throughout the week. And we'll see if it, if it does pop up and float up. Um, I, just, I, I think it's amazing because I've seen that and I haven't told anybody this, there is bubbly water on my, on my boat at all time because of that uh that clip just something interesting if it's if it works i think it's fantastic we i think musky fishermen are the biggest catch and release freaks in all of fishing um we do everything possible to make the fish live um it's just something that i have in my back pocket when i do see those intense bleed, uh, those intense bleeds. Um, and I'm like, if I think it's not going to make it, you know, I'm, I, I, I think this is going to clauterize it. I saw it, you know, I saw it on, I saw it on a clip, you know, what a better, it couldn't have happened at a, at a better time, uh, to do that, you know, for, for that situation to pop up and for you to, to do this. Um, I'm, did you see that? 54 that you caught floating anywhere no no and i'm i'm confident i'm confident because of like i have worked on we did a study called project noble beast um on the ottawa river back about seven years ago groundbreaking study on i think 53 different fish where we measured all the stress components of a fish to see what we did to it through the angling experience. Um, and so I consider myself to be really well-versed in stress and reading stress in fish. Um, and, and everything, everything tells me all the physiological signs and the strength of the fish, um, in swimming away, uh, its ability to go down. Everything tells me that it was, uh, that it's, that it lived. Um, can I prove it? Nope. Do you need to prove it for science? Yes. I do have one recapture of a fish that I, uh, that I applied 
uh, Diet Coke too myself, and it's a smaller fish, 34-inch fish, I believe. And so, you know, I can say, I can say that in this instance, this one instance. But yeah, again, it's, um, um, you know, it's 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 a long road to hopefully finding a better tool. Um, we'll 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 see, we'll see. And it it is a very interesting marriage between science and between uh, between experience um, and anecdotal evidence on the water. And, uh, I think we're really lucky up here in that we have some, uh, amazing people, John Castleman, who, who, uh, worked on the, uh, Cleithrum project, which is a basis for managing fisheries in throughout musky fisheries, um, throughout North America. He's somebody who was a, a pike guide in his youth on the St. Lawrence. And he, he understands greatly the value of somebody who spent the thousands of uh, and thousands of hours on the on the water and what their eyes see, how they see change, and et cetera. And so, you know, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great marriage. Science people are uh, are great at science, and musky guys are just weird and great at muskies. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I got a question here. So, you said that fifty-four you caught had a muscle. It, it was bleeding from a muscle, like the hook cut its skin, correct? Um, the, it, it was pierced. It wasn't pierced in the gill. It was probably an inch from where the gill protrudes on the lower jaw. So one of those, um, one of those muscular, uh, I, I can't, I don't know my biology well enough to. Right. Again, to, but uh, I mean, you, you answered. Yeah, not, not the gill. It was in a place that I could apply the pop and not, not directly you know, keep, keep it off the gills as best I could. And that's, that's a key to this. Uh, I was going to say, because they did their experiment on the gill. I mean, that's gotta be something different. Like if I'm bleeding out my, you know, out my neck, it's going to be different than me bleeding in my lungs. Yeah, exactly. And there's, you know, fish have very little blood in their bodies. So when they are bleeding profusely, it's, they're going to bleed out fairly quickly. So especially in warmer water, they're bleeding more. Um, there's a vein over a fish's eye that can bleed profusely. There's a cheek vein. There's a tongue vein. And then there's a couple in the throat, not in the gills, but in the, in the deeper throat area as well. And so those are the hook piercing points that I think you can help a fish, uh, that, that you can stop the bleeding without impacting, um, without impacting the gills or the heart. And again, you know, from the research, I, I, I have to to temper my comments. I can't I can't outright suggest to people that that they should, you know, that they should just uh, ad hoc or pop on these injuries. But if you've got a fish, if you're experienced and you've seen fish bleed out, or you've got a fish that you know probably isn't going to make it, you know, you can watch it die, or or you can or you can act, and so. You know, it, 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 it's a personal choice, and uh, I, I know where I'm going on it, and uh, I still believe that, that it, there's the right time, right place, right way, and that it can absolutely help. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sitting here trying to say that they're wrong. I think that, obviously, their uh, their research probably has a lot of merit, but you weren't comparing apples from your original story to where... Um, yeah. And, and it's it's... It, to me, it, it throws a big question mark. Again, it, 
who knows what the evidence, you know, should, uh, you know, if they do another test and try something like that, what it comes up with. But to me, I wouldn't be discouraged off of like what you had filmed to uh, what the research shown because they really weren't the same injury. Um, does anyone know if you can take a Diet Coke and pour it on yourself? So you cut yourself, you know, whatever musky tooth cuts you. Can you Vance, Do you know anything like that? Carbonated um, beverage? Does it work? Yeah. Interestingly, I, I had a couple of, uh, paramedics out in my boat, uh, two or three years ago. One of the guys with his first, first boat side fish again. And, uh, I tried to get him to wear a glove. He didn't fish shook and it cut his thumb. And so, they were anxious to see if it would work on people too. So we poured it on, kept bleeding, poured it on, kept bleeding, poured it on, kept bleeding. So no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we concluded after, uh, after 60 seconds of continuous bleeding that no. Yeah. I'm going to agree with that. Yeah. Uh, Curious. But but... These are... Yeah. I, I, I can, I, I feel you here with, uh, there needs to be a broader research on it. Stipulations with it. Uh, every cut on a fish is different. Every catch, every hook placement is different. But it would be interesting and it would be lovely uh, to see. And you're, you're the front runner with this hook cut, where it goes from hook cutters, nets, uh, anything like that, gloves, and then also a carbonated beverage just to add onto your release tools. Exactly. You know, the the more tools you have on your belt to effectively release a fish, the better it is for every one of us in the musky world, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Hey, we're we're right now approaching an hour and ten minutes into this. Before we go down another side rabbit hole and make it an hour and a half, is there something you want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, you can keep going down the rabbit hole. We'll go wherever you want to go. Yeah. Okay. I, I just think that I think that's so that that's so incredible that that uh, pop stuff, the carbonated beverage, and then you could say this is proven, but you know, honestly, in, in a guide's mind or a fisher fisherman's mind, you know what happens in the field, and you know that you're doing everything possible to get that thing back in the water and uh, to release and and live on. Um, to have, you know, just some type of tube, uh, that shoots up into some type of gun, almost like a washdown kit that you could just hit these fish with, uh, that turns that in that lake water into some type of carbonation would probably be like a CO2 canister or something like that. That would be incredible. Um, yeah, a lot of the people are using those soda stream machines and just charging, triple charging. Like if you live on a lake, something, I mean, it's, it's your lake water and bubbles. So it's, you know, people that argue against this say, well, you're dumping chemicals, you're dumping sugar, you're dumping whatever acids on it and such. And so, you know, if you want to dump something innocuous, your river water, your lake water with a soda stream machine. Um, it, it's just bubbles and your own water. So, um, the, the, the hardcores that I know, this is what they're keeping on their boats right now. That is awesome. I might try something here. I'm going to take a towel and some super glue cause that works. 
I'll take a towel and some uh, super glue because, you know, when I get cut, nothing's uh, quicker to stop that bleeding than good old super glue. So I'm just going to take a towel and just dry off their gill rakes and, you know, all the all the nice red stuff to stop the bleeding, and I'll just put super glue all over the gills. Good idea? Bad idea? Terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible idea. That was a joke, all, John. <laughs> all, the, all, the, all the bleeding that happened on the human body today, which was – a hundred percent mine. I used uh, just electrical tape. <laughs> You're catching <laughs> all these fish that have still, these like tape had, marks around them. I had a, uh, I had club soda, you know, ready, but I, I, I felt that I already knew that that wouldn't stop the bleeding on myself, so I just used uh, electrical tape. That that's your uh, first aid kit, Vance. Well, I, no, I have a lot more. I mean, I have peroxide and stuff like that. And, uh, <laughs> but why? When of, you could be an electrician. <laughs> I mean, this is good because you can keep fishing with electrical tape. You just stop the bleeding and go right back to fishing, right? That's what I did. I mean, my hands looked like a uh, like a defensive lineman's. You know, it was just all taped up, ready to go for a football game. It was terrible, but. Awesome, awesome stuff. I love how people, you said the people are kind of catching on with this. It's another tool in the basket for a release, for releasing fish. You know, it started from keeping them to jaw spreaders to hook cutters, cradles to bolt cutters, nipex, um, needle nose pliers. Now, if people have this, you know, lake, uh, carbonation gun, it's a great, it's a great thing to have. Uh, I, I, I'm for it. And like I said, there is a bottle of club soda on my boat. It is generic brand, but it's essentially just mineral water. Um, for the extreme uh, bleeding circumstances, it's just another other tool in in uh, in your back pocket. I mean, why not try it? Yeah, I have a couple thoughts on this. So, <clears throat> one is actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that one last. So, even if all the science says this is just witchcraft, it doesn't really work. Whatever. There's a part of the Good Samaritan Act that you're trying to do here in that if you can get that fish to kick off and swim away, that you know that you've done everything you can, even though if that fish is going to die, it doesn't matter at this point. You've exhausted every effort that you know that could possibly help the fish. It's musky fishing. It's a blood sport. There's just no two ways around it. If you really cared that much about the fish, you wouldn't be out there doing it. So having something like that and kind of knowing like what we just talked about here is, you know what? It might not be so good for the old ticker in that fish if you dump it on the lungs. I haven't read the report, but you know what? On maybe another wound off of your life experience, it could it could be the difference. Now, with that said, fishing is an enormous sport covering the whole world. Something like this, trying to find the magic potion 
and it could be, who knows, rubbing alcohol or something else that could instantly stop, you know, aquatic species from stop bleeding, you know, for whatever reason. That's like a trillion dollar idea right there. Coming up with something that's like instant. You have it on a spray bottle, two sprays, it's done bleeding. Okay, that fish went from a 5% survival rate up to an 85%. I don't think you could make it quick enough. People would go bananas over that. I think that it's in the beginning stages is what possibly could be very, very beneficial for all fish species. So I really think that that's, that's something neat that you even had the forethought to get some funding money and all this other stuff. That's great. Well, appreciate it. Re- really appreciate the sentiment and, uh, and the plug. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're all on the same page. You know, we, we, we want better and, and we do keep finding better. So this is just, uh, this is just one of those alleys down the road. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, just partway down this road. We'll see where it goes. It's yeah. You, you, know? you took the first step, you know, you, you just took a bite out of that elephant. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, for any, for other species, you know, if you're a salmon or a trout guy, that's, that's a bleeding, that's a fish that bleeds. And so, um, you know, there's so many different applications. Who knows where it goes? Yeah, that's that's some really good stuff. I'm gonna say, I mean, let's let's just end this one here. I think that's a really Wait, good. What's I got, that? I got I got one more thing. Okay. True or false? You keep a rubber bait without hooks on for <laughs> pleasure boaters. <laughs> that, that was that that was an American thing. I, I I'm pretty sure I have I have a shirt actually a Pete Mana <laughs> shirt from from I don't know I don't know how old, 15 16 17 years ago and it's got a picture of probably Pete with long hair standing on the front of a boat and a kid going by on a jet ski and you can see the rods loaded up and the quotation underneath says we don't miss. <laughs> so were, Did he have a big you, you pink were describing hat on? earlier today about how much fun you had with a couple of uh, a, a couple of uh, fast young kids on their uh, pleasure crafts earlier in the day. Yeah, you know we, we have that on some places up here too. I don't have to deal with it on the Ottawa River, but some of the other places. And yeah, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if everyone was considerate? Yeah. Yeah, they obeyed the laws. Yes. And if they're not, train them with a rubber bait. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, John, if someone wanted to come book a trip with you, where can we find you on the internet? OttawaRiverMuskyFactory.com. And same thing on Facebook. We run a blog on both places. We're very active in posting. We try to post more than just uh, grip and grin photos. Usually there's an educational component to our stories, something about uh, condition, something ideally to help people catch fish. Muskyfactorybaits.com is our store. That video that we spoke about um, through here, uh, saveamillionfish.com, if anybody wants to go and see uh, the actual video clip that inspired this uh, this study and this, uh, this organization and this journey. So there's three different venues for you. Excellent. Everyone give his Facebook page a like, check it out, check out his website. And um, let's see, I'm going to wrap this one up. Big thanks to Fatty Z Muskie Products, Muddy Creek Fishing Guides, St. Croix Rods, Ranger Boats, Vix Marine, 
and Muskies Inc. With that, um, this is our last show of our fifth year. Our next show is going to be starting our sixth year. So big thanks to everyone listening and good luck fishing.